We're in a series on the end times titled Endgame, what we know about what's to come. And we actually know a lot about what's to come because God is marching history toward a predetermined end. No one can thwart God's purposes. And he has chosen to share with us some of what he's going to do. Now, God tells us everything we need to know to make decisions now that honor him. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know. And that was the case before the first coming of Jesus. He kept uh, quite a bit of the details a mystery. And the Bible tells us even though the Old Testament prophets, you know, thoroughly searched the scriptures trying to discover what the, uh, what the spirit of Christ in them was foretelling, you know, they didn't get all, they just didn't get the timeline all perfect. And so the people of God were a little surprised when Jesus came. Uh, they hadn't you know, figured that all out. Uh, and God then revealed, you know, in his time, the new stuff. And I suspect that's the same thing with the second coming of Christ. He's told us a lot, and I think a lot of the details, uh, he just keeps to himself and we'll figure it out when it, you know, it's going to be revealed to us when it comes. So when you study what the Bible says about what's to come, uh, everything we need to know uh, is told us, but you will be left uh, with some questions unanswered. That's just the way it is, and that's okay. And in fact, I, I cautioned us week one, our, in, you know, our kind of human desire to have a, a very uh, ordered, neat, wrapped up package of the future can sometimes get us into trouble because we might sort of try to make the Bible claim that the Bible says more than it actually says. The topics we are going through in this series, living in the last days, the second coming of Jesus Christ, resurrection of the dead, the great tribulation and the rapture, the millennium, the final judgment, heaven and hell, the book, how to approach the book of Revelation. That's actually next week. Pastor James is going to preach that. And then that statement in scripture, and so Israel, all Israel will be saved. These are some of the topics we are addressing. Uh, if you miss any of them, you can catch up online, clearwater.church. They're there for you. Uh, also, I have uh, notes today. If you didn't get them uh, on your way in, you can get them on your way out. It's going to be all up on the screen, but I just didn't want you trying to capture these charts that I have because you wouldn't then listen. Today's topic is the millennium. Millennium means thousand years. And it refers to a passage in Scripture, Revelation chapter 20, that talks about the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Uh, and there are lots of opinions about what it is that God is telling us in this passage. So the millennium is only named in that one passage, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, now, there are uh, other texts in the Bible that people believe are also describing what will happen in the millennium, even though it doesn't name the millennium. But the key text to start with is Revelation 20. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. And I'll start by reading uh, the first 10 verses. Then I saw... Now, by the way, this is uh, the book of Revelation, the apostle John, who has at this time exiled uh, on the island of Patmos. The Roman Empire has put him there uh, because they view him and his 
Christian teachings to be creating controversy in the empire, and so they don't like that, and they've put him on an island. And he gets some visions from God uh, about that he then records in Revelation. And some of those visions pertain to the future. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, what's that all about? <laughs> what, is John, what did John see? What, is, what did God reveal to him? Well, throughout uh, church history, there have been three major views on the millennium. John's vision here. Uh, amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. Now, we're going to go into school mode for a few minutes. So put your thinking caps on. This is educational time. And then at the end, we're going to talk about, so what does this mean for us practically? But don't check out on me, even though I'm going to throw up here some graphs and charts and things like that. All right. Number one is, uh, the first view is amillennialism. And ah means no, no millennium. And it's not that they're saying we don't believe what John saw. They're saying we don't believe that John uh, is, was predicting a future earthly reign of Jesus Christ. Because one of the views is that John is describing a time that will be after the second coming of Jesus where he will reign physically on the earth and we in transformed bodies, will reign with him on the earth. And, and so amillennialists say, no, 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 no. Uh, John's not describing a future reality. He's describing what's happening right now. He's describing the church age. 
So, well, what's this binding of Satan? Oh, well, that is what Jesus referred to when he said, you know, uh, I've bound the strong man. Or I saw Satan falling like lightning from the sky. Or when Jesus says, I, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and so they say, well, what John is using symbolic language to describe the fact that uh, Satan's on his heels. The Holy Spirit is at work through his church getting out the gospel. And, and, and Satan can no longer deceive the nations because the nations are now being enlightened by the, the preaching of the word. And people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth are going to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the church will grow. That's what he's talking about. It's not, don't take this literally. He's being, he's being symbolic describing something that's happening now. Okay, well, then what's John talking about when he says, you know, and I, the first, what's this first resurrection? He's there, well, look, he, what he's talking about is what the Bible, when the Bible says that when we are saved, we become, um, we are made spiritually alive. The Bible even says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies in the spiritual realm, right? And, and Christ is reigning in heaven. It's a spiritual rule at this point, and, uh, and we're alive with him, spiritually reigning with him. Uh, another take for all millennialists is, hey, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, so dead Christians are actually in heaven uh, with Christ, ruling with him. So it's just, you know, we're describing, it's describing using spiritual symbolic language, it's describing the spiritual reality that Christ is ruling and his people rule with him. Well, okay, what's about, what does it mean then that at the end of the age, Satan will be released and will go and deceive? And they say, yeah, that's, that's talking about um, kind of that tribulation period where things get really bad. <laughs> that's what that's talking about. So amillennialists say, uh, you know, there's the church age, there's the second coming of Jesus, and then you know, the eternal state, which means there's, there's one bodily resurrection of believer and unbeliever. The unbeliever is, you know, judged and put to hell. The believers are just given their rewards and they go hang out with Jesus for, for the rest of eternity. Uh, and when Christ returns, there's the new heaven, new earth, and the eternal state. Okay? That's all millennialism. Postmillennialism. Postmillennialism has a very different take uh, postmillennialism says Jesus will return after the millennium, and uh, they build their their understanding is that the gospel is going to gain increasing influence in society. More and more people will become Christians. The societal structures will become more and more Christianized, and eventually. The whole world will be under sort of a messianic, it will almost be like a messianic age where the gospel has just tremendous sway in the world. Jesus will return at, at sort of this high point of Christianity. And so their understanding comes from you know, some of the parables in Matthew about the kingdom of heaven is like a little mustard seed, tiny seed, and it grows into be this big tree and all the birds hang out in it, or a little leaven, and ends up leavening the whole, leavening the whole bread. 
the gospel. And so it's, very, it's a very triumphal view of uh, the gospel's power and the church, church's uh, uh, eventual influence in society. As you can imagine, if you have a post-millennial view, it does influence your view of what the church should be about, right? The church should not be limited, limiting its mission to you know, just saving individuals. The church needs to be involved in trying to transform society at all levels. I actually think that is a, that is a, healthy, uh, a healthy aspect of post-millennialism. So post-millennium says we're in the church age. The church is going to just gain increasing sway, and, uh, and it will become like as if we're in a millennial reign, and then Christ will return and we'll enter into the eternal state. Then the third view is called premillennialism, and premillennialism understands John to be talking about a future earthly reign of Jesus after the second coming. And, and what, you know, whether it's a thousand years or whether a thousand years is just kind of a, a number describing whatever amount of time God determines is necessary to accomplish his purposes during that time is, is certainly debated. Um, but the idea is that, you know, Jesus will return and then he's going to, he's going to actually rule on earth from Jerusalem and Christians throughout all history, if, you're, if you are a Christian who, is, who has died, um, when Christ returns, he will bring your body back to life. You'll get your resurrected body, and you will then hang out on earth with Jesus. If you're a Christian who's alive when Jesus returns, you'll be raptured, transformed, and you also get to rule on the earth. But it won't just be Christians. When Christ returns, there will be people alive on the earth who aren't Christians, and those people will just continue living, and they'll be marrying and having children, and they'll die, and those children will live and die. And so there's this, the Christians are ruling with Christ, but there are, there are people on the earth. And that's why, you know, uh, that's why the Bible talks about Christ will rule with a rod of iron. It's like, why would you need to rule with power? when everybody is, you know, on your side or being obedient, which we Christians will be. Um, and then, um, so the, the schematic there is, you know, we're in a church age. Then the church age is going to wind up with this great period of great tribulation. We talked about that last week. At the end of the great tribulation, uh, then Christ will return and uh, rapture the Christians and transform the, the dead believers resurrect the dead believers, then there'll be a millennial reign. And not until that thousand-year earthly reign of Jesus is over will all the rest of the uh, dead rise. So the unbeliever will rise from the dead at that time to face judgment. Um, by the way, the, most of the time premillennialists believe that the Christian will be judged prior to the millennium for our rewards. Uh, and then, only then will we enter into the eternal state? And there's some debate whether the, whether the recreated earth, right, new heavens and the new earth, um, many premillennialists believe that that happens uh, prior to the millennial so that we get to hang out in a recreated earth, right? There is one other, uh, there's a, um, premillennialism has 
two basic versions. There's classic or historic premillennialism, which I just talked about. Uh, that's been around since the very beginning of the church. In fact, my understanding is it was dominant up until the 400, early 400s when St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, uh, went, went all in on amillennialism, and he was so influential that he sort of uh, swept the day. Then there is, uh, in, the, in the late 1700s, really got going in the 1800s and became dominant in the U.S. and England in the, in the 19, early 1900s for sure, is dispensational premillennialism. And it's all, dispensational premillennialism says the church is going to be raptured prior to the tribulation. And the other thing that, uh, there are two other things that really define dispensational premillennialism. One is they have a very strong uh, separation of ethnic Israel and the church. And they do not believe that the church has inherited the promises given to ethnic Israel. God made promises to ethnic Israel that have not been fulfilled. In fact, they would say that the primary purpose of the future earthly reign of Jesus is to fulfill the promises God made to ethnic Israel. So super hard, uh, super strong separation between uh, Israel and the church, many non-dispensationalists say, no, 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 you know, uh, the people of God have always been defined by faith, and, you know, and they, Paul, what is circumcision? It's not circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart, and that the church, the church is the people of God today. They've, they have, in a sense, co-opted the, pro you know, God fulfills his promises to Israel in, in the church. The other mark of predispensational premillennialism is a very hard uh, literalistic interpretation of prophecy, oh, the whole Bible, but they would say you, you must interpret things literally unless you absolutely can't. Classical premillennialism definitely is, uh, leans toward literal interpretation, but is a little quicker to accept a symbolic interpretation. All right, you're like, am I in school here? Hanging with me a little bit more. We're going to do just um, a super quick evaluation of these viewpoints uh, you know, so that you can see um, how it is people, you know, so what are, what are scholars really debating? So amillennialism. If somebody is trying to uh, make the case for amillennialism, they'd say, here are some strengths. Uh, number one, Amillennialism recognizes that, you know, sometimes the Bible is using symbolic language to describe spiritual realities. Now, whether or not that's what John's doing in Revelation 20, hotly debated, but, but I think that's a strength. Um, secondly, amillennialism uh, shies away from building a major doctrine on one passage. That's one of the challenges of premillennialism is, I mean, amillennialism is only directly referred to in one text in the whole Bible, and it seems like a pretty significant doctrine. Are you sure? Are you sure you should be developing a, a, a significant doctrine off of one text? Of course, the counter to that is, well, it only takes one. The Bible only needs to say it one time for us to believe it. True, and 
hey, once you, you know, what John says makes, makes a lot of sense of other biblical passages. So really, the Bible doesn't just talk about the, the millennium once. It talks about it a lot of places once you, once you accept Revelation 20. Uh, another uh, another uh, strength of amillennialism is it fits into the biblical uh, dichotomy of this age and the age to come, which the Bible, you know, the Bible often talks about this age and the age to come. And so one of the challenges of, of the premillennialists is to say, uh, so where does the millennium fit? Is it this age? Or is it in the age to come? And it seems to be, it seems to not fit neatly in one, one or the other. Uh, another argument for amillennialism is that the Bible, the rest of the Bible seems to indicate there's only one resurrection, not multiples. John chapter 5, verse 28, for example, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, right, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Boy, that sounds like there's one resurrection, and it takes place at one, you know, an hour is coming, like one time, everybody gets raised. Uh, the counter to that, to that is, nah, sometimes the Bible gives, in other places, rec- helps us recognize things are not quite as... Uh, there might be, it might break up more what seems to be going to happen all at one time. Now, some weaknesses of amillennialism is, is number one, amillennium, amillennialism requires a symbolic reading of Revelation 20. And, you know, why, why wouldn't you just take what John says there literally? Why, why read it symbolically? Uh, another weakness is, um, in this text, Revelation 20, the second, re- the second resurrection, resurrection is clearly a bodily resurrection. So why would the first resurrection in the same text, you know, why would you think that's not also bodily? Why can, how can that be spiritual if, if the second resurrection John is clearly talking about is bodily? Uh, another issue is that uh, premillennialists point out is they say, look, what John says here is Satan is bound with a chain. He's thrown into a pit. The pit is locked and sealed. That seems like a total cessation of Satan's activities, which is what premillennialism you know, is describing. Satan, Satan is doing nothing during that thousand-year reign of Jesus, whereas the amillennialists have to describe what John is saying is, well, Satan is handicapped, right? He's slowed down. But because the New Testament clearly talks about Satan is active right now, right? Put on the full armor of God that you can resist the, uh, you can put out the flaming darts of the evil one, and your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he devour. Satan is clearly at work in the church age, and so, you know, the premillennials will say, Boy, John doesn't seem to be just talking about a slowdown of Satan activities. So, by the way, all I'm trying to do is expose you to, you know, what it, why, why it is that Bible-believing Christians are coming up with differing, come up with differing opinions or differing interpretations of the millennium. Post-millennialism, I think it's just weak. 
I don't, I'm not a, impressed with post-millennialism. Yeah, it, it takes seriously this, these parables of in Matthew chapter 13, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed a man took and sowed in the field. It's the smallest of all seeds when it's grown. It's larger than all the garden plants becomes a tree. Birds make their nests. Uh, told another parable. Kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and uh, you know it, it. The whole, all the flour gets leavened. Yes, the gospel started small with just a small group in in Jerusalem, and there are billions of Christians now throughout history. But that these parables don't say that it will be you know universal, right? Doesn't ever. It doesn't talk about uh, the ultimate extent of the gospel's influence. And, and the weakness of postmillennialism, the weakness of postmillennialism is that the Bible seems to indicate that towards the end, things aren't going to be getting better, they're going to get worse. Uh, Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I mean, people are like that today, right? But that's, I mean, it doesn't seem, I, don't, I just don't get, I don't read the New Testament and get much of a triumphal, a triumphalist view Premillennialism. All right, let's deal with premillennialism. Premillennialism's strengths, it's got, it's got many strengths. One of its strengths is a very straightforward reading of Revelation 20. Another strength is that of the binding of Satan, right? Boy, the binding of Satan seems to be a total cessation of activity. That fits well, this view of a future earthly reign of Jesus. Um, it it understands the resurrection to be an actual bodily resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection. Because nowhere else in Scripture is the resurrection ever spiritual, right? So amillennialists have to uh, take the resurrection in Revelation 20 spiritually, and nowhere else in Scripture is it ever talked about that way. Um, several Old Testament texts, when written, when, and this is important, when read literally... Several Old Testament texts don't seem to fit neatly into either the present age or the eternal state. Uh, so, for example, Isaiah 65, 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And so, okay, that has, it's a, you have to, it's a huge stretch to claim that that's ever happened, right? That's never been the reality in Israel yet. Okay. Well, is that, is that describing the future? Well, but, but there's death, right? It's not saying people won't ever die. It's saying he's going to die at a hundred, so... There's death there, so, how do, so that doesn't seem to be the eternal state where there's no death. And so premillennialists will say, you know, even though he doesn't say millennium, he's describing what's going to be happening in the thousand-year reign where you've got, you know, 
Uh, you've got hu- uh, unregenerate people who are living and dying. But they're living under the rule of Christ in, a, in most likely a remade heaven and earth. And so 100 years of age is seen as a young, young death, right? Here's another one. Uh, Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." So when is that has not happened? You know, is that talking about the eternal state? And premillennialists will say that's talking about the earthly reign of Jesus in that future future time. Psalm seventy-two. May he have Jesus, the King. May the, may the Messiah have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. That has not yet happened. And so is that describing you know, the ultimate eternal state where there are no wicked people at all and... Uh, Premillennials say that it makes more sense for that to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And then finally, Zechariah 14. Then everyone who survives, survives what? Uh, Premillennials will say survives that final battle of Armageddon that precedes the return of Jesus. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. Where are they going? They're going to Jerusalem to worship Jesus, who is ruling the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So you defy Jesus. You don't give him the the honor that he's due and all of a sudden, your, your kingdom doesn't get any rain. That hasn't happened. Is, and, and maybe that's just all symbolic. And premillennials will say, that makes total sense if you're thinking about an earthly future reign of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem. Okay. So those are some, some of the strengths of the premillennial uh, position. But it has some, it has some weaknesses. Where does the earthly reign of Christ fit in the two ages? We talked about that. Why didn't Jesus and Paul ever talk about the the millennium? I mean, this seems like a pretty big doctrine. Jesus never named it. Paul never named it. Why is it only talked about in one scripture? Um, Another another weakness is, uh, all millennials will point out, doesn't it seem a little far-fetched to have uh, Christians in these transformed bodies living forever, Living on earth at the same time that you got, you know, these uh, people dying and having children. I mean, that's just hard to imagine. Of course, the argument of that is it's hard to imagine because it's not a reality yet. But when it's our, when it's our reality, it won't be abnormal. Uh, another question, another challenge is, well, hey, um, 
are people going to really rebel against... I mean, John talks about Satan gets loosed again after a thousand years, and he's able to deceive so many people that they're like the sand of the seas. I mean, who's going to rebel against Jesus when you've seen? You, you know who he is. He's like clearly God. And, uh, of course, premillennialists will say, yeah, and, and that's one thing that points out the true condition of the human heart. You know, people's unbelief and wickedness is not usually because of lack of evidence. It's because of the, the rebellious condition of their hearts. They don't want Jesus to be in charge of their lives. And so Satan just gives them the belief that they can somehow overthrow this rule of Jesus that they chafe under and feel is tyrannical, and they swallow it and go for it. And of course, they fail, and, and Satan is deceiving people right now with that same lie. Dispensational premillennialism, I already hit this, but in my opinion, dispensational premillennial, premillennialism is overly committed to a literal interpretation. You know, my fundamental approach to Scripture is, you know, you take it at a straightforward face value reading of Scripture. But Scripture has different genres, right? When the, mountain, the mountains and the hills, they clap their hands. You don't have to believe that there are mountains out there in hills with little hands that are clear, right? right? You're like, obviously, that's poetic, and we don't take that literally. And, well, when you're dealing with prophetic and an apocalyptic genre, um, you know, we have to be, a, I don't want to use the word sophisticated, but we have to recognize that we don't need to be slaves to, a very, to, to this literalistic interpretation. And then I do, I don't think, I think that this dichotomy between Israel and the church is, is too s severe, in my opinion. And we're going to, we'll, we'll talk about this in the future, but um, yeah, uh, ethnic Israel, you know, does, did God make promises to ethnic Israel, to people who don't have faith in Jesus, or is the promise going, is the promise that there will be, because I do think that the scriptures teach that in the future there will be a significant spiritual awakening on, of the Jews to the reality of who Jesus is, and there will be a, a mass conversion to Christ. All right, that's in the future. Okay, we're done. I'm, I'm gonna, we're, we're almost done with the teaching. Here, sorry. No, not sorry. It's good stuff. You need to know this. My personal summary, I lean toward classical... Uh, premillennialism. I cannot rule out amillennialism. I think postmillennialism is very weak, and I don't like pre... I don't like dispensational premillennialism's hard dichotomy between ethnic Israel and the church and their overly uh, hard in, uh, literalistic interpretation. But our church has no official position on the millennium. You can be a member in good standing and have whatever position on the millennium you want, and I'll partner with you in ministry. God bless you. Now, no matter what you think John is referring to, I do believe there are some things that we all can agree on. And these are very important uh, takeaways of the millennium. There they are. Number one. The millennium teaches, John's passage in Revelation 20 teaches that Satan is totally subservient to God. 
Satan is not a counterpower to God. God is sovereign. Satan is created. Satan owes his, his even, even his own existence to the will of God. And so God, at any moment, can just say, I'm going to send down an angel. Satan gets bound, thrown into a pit. Can't do nothing until God lets him go again. Right? There are, there, it, it's not yin and yang, people. It's God sits on the throne. And he's totally sovereign. And so, yes, as Christians, we are to be aware of the devil's schemes. We're to resist the devil. We do not need to be afraid of the devil. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't ever mess that up. You know, don't be casual about Satan, but we don't be afraid of Satan. We, we stand in the truth of God, and uh, we're indwelt with the Spirit of God. Yes, Satan is totally subservient to God. Number two, uh, John is clearly reminding us that God has a plan. He is marching history toward a predetermined end, and no one can thwart the plan of God. After a thousand years, he must be released. Why must he be released? Because, because God has a purpose and a plan, and that's part of God's plan, and therefore he must. And so knowing that God, who loves us enough to die for us, is sovereign over history and has, and has taken everything somewhere and has promised us, promised us that where he's taking everything is going to be good for us. How settling is that, right? How settling is that? We live in a, in a world that if we truly could see the big plan... You know, it's a good plan, and it makes sense, and, and uh, so we can rest in that. Number three, John, John's revelation clearly reminds us that God's people will end up on top, right? And so often through, throughout history, the people of God are on the bottom. Sometimes they, are, uh, they can't get jobs or they won't get promotions because of their faith in Jesus. Sometimes they're kicked out of their families. Sometimes they're not let into the most popular social circles and the places of power. Sometimes they're beaten and put in prison and killed. But uh, throughout history, the people of God are often on the bottom. And if we just are evaluating the wisdom of following Christ... Uh, by looking horizontally, we might conclude, why am I following Jesus? This isn't helping me. This isn't blessing me. And yet one of the things we're reminded of is, look, at the end, at the, end the people of God are reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. And, and there's, there's coming a day when everyone will see, oh, the truly wise person is the person who made Jesus Lord of their lives and endured a temporary suffering and temporary setbacks and, and were willing to be kind of on the bottom for, for the short term because they were convinced that in the end they were going to wind up on top. A fourth takeaway of this passage is that Christians aren't going to suffer the second death. Don't, don't go past that, right? Uh, you know, you're the uh, how, do, how exactly does he put it here? 
over such the second death has no power. Wow. What's the second death? Well, we, we're going to all die physically, right? God doesn't, uh, doesn't protect his people from the, the breakdown of the body. But the second death is when God says, depart from me, I never knew you, and cast you into hell for all eternity to be separated from God and his goodness. And the Christian is not going to endure that. The, the Christian he- hears, come into your rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come get your reward. Come be with me. Another takeaway of the, from Revelation 20, this text, is that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yeah, right now he's seated with the, with, on the right hand of the Father, but he is king, and because I'm a classical premillennialist, I, I think that the, one of the points here is that Christ's rule will be uh, very, it's going to be manifest and tangible, and there will be no more competitors. Right? There's coming a day when there, are no, there aren't going to be any other pretend kings, no, no other antichrists. Uh, nobody, nobody else is um, resisting the rule of Jesus. He will be shown to be the king of kings and lord of lords, and his rule will be throughout the whole universe. No nook and cranny in a human heart, no nook and cranny in anywhere in the universe that is resisting Jesus. He will be king. Another takeaway of this text is that Satan and all who side with him, although that comes in, I think, the next chapter, but Satan will be punished. He's not going to get away with uh, all the destruction that he's wreaked on humanity throughout the ages. Uh, He's not going to, at the end of the day, he's not just bound, right? He is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He will be punished. It's going to, eventually he'll be, his reign of havoc will be over. And we won't be, he won't be our adversary anymore messing around with us. Another takeaway is, and I think this is, you know, we're going to keep hitting this because this is one of the primary purposes of God's, one of God's primary purposes about telling us what's coming is to encourage us to remain faithful to Christ today. I know it gets hard for the Christian, the God, I mean, this is God. He knows it gets hard for us and we have it, we have it easy compared to how, how Christians have had it throughout time in certain places. And, and in fact, when somebody is saying to you, I'm going to potentially throw you to lions or take your children away and, and uh, put them in prison or kill them, and you're asking, is, it, is, that, is all that, is following Jesus worth all that? That's when these, these texts are absolutely critical. It's saying, don't give up. Remain faithful to Jesus to the end. Even though, remember Revelation 2, even though they kill your body, I'll give you the crown of life. And then finally, although it's not directly stated, I I think a clear takeaway from this text is uh, we still have an opportunity right now to preach the gospel and get the good news out and, and get people saved. 
And so let's not be apathetic about that, right? Uh, let's not waste our, let's not squander this opportunity by building our little kingdom on earth that's going to ultimately go away, right? It's such a temporary little kingdom. And the temporary pleasures and the temporary comforts, let's, let's uh, correctly, correctly eval, uh, value those. Sure, they're nice, but they, don't, they pale in comparison to what is eternal. And so now is the time. And, and that's one of, the, one of the things that we do when we get together is together we can get more done, right? We work together to get out the gospel. And so let's, let's, stay, let's stay on point. So, we're, uh, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to read these takeaways again. And just let the one that, let God grip you with the one that's for you today. And then just um, sit on that. And I'll ask the band to come back up. Satan is totally subservient to God. God has a plan, and it cannot be thwarted. God's people will end up on top. Christians will not suffer the second death. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Satan and all who side with him will be punished. Remain faithful to Jesus until the end. Now is the time to get out the gospel.